And we're live. Hey, all you crazy people. So uh, we appreciate you coming back. So uh, now I'm going to pretend I've done this before and actually start the introduction because it kind of surprised me when we when we hit the like button. But hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, I'm going to let our guest, Mr. John Van Stry, who you might recognize from our recent fireside chat. But uh, John, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers who might not have watched that episode? Okay, my name is John Van Stry. I've been full-time writing since about 2015. I write science fiction and fantasy. I write under both my name and a pen name, uh, Jan or Jan, depending how you pronounce it, Strivant. It's very clever, I know, I just reversed my last name. Um, And I do this full-time. I started publishing in 2011. Okay, so the next part of the introduction, dear listener, and I pronounced it by the way, uh, Jan. I thought it, that's what it was, but Jan makes sense too. Um, Either or. But I, actually, I was actually introduced to John by uh, the PR for Bain Books, which is uh, Sean Korsgaard. I'm probably butchering his last name, so I'm sorry, Sean. But uh, <laughs> when we were looking for you know the the guests for the werewolves, etc. episode, and he recommended John, so I'm glad he did. And when I was prepping. The book we're going to discuss, one of the later books cover was on his Facebook group. And I'm like, we've got to have him back and talk about that. It was just too cool. So so that's that episode. But um, this would not be the Blasters and Blades podcast if we didn't do the uh, religion question, sir. So <clears throat> Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Firefly, hands down. Excellent answer. Brown coats forever. All right. So did you like the, uh, the Serenity when they did the two-hour movie? Yeah, it was pretty good. I'm glad they did it. It wrapped up a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm really annoyed that they killed the series. Um, I mean, the, and they showed it out of order. But I like Ron Glass. I've always been a, fi- a fan of Ron Glass because he's just a really good actor. And when they had him on as the preacher, you know he had this. They had this big backstory planned for him. And we didn't get to see it because they, they killed it way too soon. And we got a hint of his backstory in Serenity. Obviously, he was one of the corps or one of the government's big assassins. And I guess he had a come his come to Jesus moment or whatever and became a preacher. But that was one of the characters that just fascinated me because it had obvious such depth to it. Yeah. So that's a, that was a good one. I really loved it. But like all good things, uh, Fox is where the good shows go to die. So... <laughs> Unfortunately, and then of course, this was back in the era before um, you could binge watch everything on the system. So it was literally, if you weren't there, your choice was to DVR it. Uh, for all you young folks, just Google it. And of course, they didn't DVR it by because the technology just wasn't there. It wasn't DVR'd by, oh, this is the Firefly episode, whatever. It was that, but it was also time slot locked. So if something pushed it, you didn't get the full episode. And then they had no reason, no way in the tracking to count those episodes as views if someone DVR'd it and they didn't watch it live. So they just, they're like, oh, nobody's watching this. And then, of course, they cancel it and all that. The, well, I can't remember the lady's name now, but the lady that made that decision got so much hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> so she found the audience was there, but by then it was too late. They'd moved on. So it's, a, it's one of my favorites, too, if you can't tell. <laughs> all right. But because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or Wheel of Time? Lord of the Rings. 
Um, I never cared. Wheel of Time, I just didn't get into. I don't know why. I just, I just didn't get into it. And Game of Thrones, it's a hack. You know, I understand totally what he did because I, I have to admit, I kind of did the same thing in one of my series too. But the whole reason for Game of Thrones, it's because he's lazy. He doesn't work unless he's hungry. He said this. And he wanted something that he could keep milking. That's why he keeps bringing up major characters, killing them, and bringing up another ones. There's, there was never an ending plan for Game of Thrones. That's why he's – and he doesn't really care about it that much because if he had, he, even if he couldn't have written it, he would have sat down with the ghostwriter and said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Do it. And the whole thing could have been wrapped up. But he doesn't care about it, and he doesn't care about his fans, really, which is kind of he's sad. That's where he's always been. So he's at the, they're writing prequels now before they finish the main series, which is an interesting choice. Um, Doc has a theory that he's actually already written the last book. He just won't publish it till he dies. <clears throat> so uh, who knows? Uh, come on. Agatha Christie did that. And then they offered her a lot of money. So she published it. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. They, they would probably probably back the money truck up to get the finished uh the last novel there's also the possibility that he made it so large that he just got lost in it and he couldn't figure out an ending I, again i just don't think he ever intended to end it yeah, possible it possible it's a little too grimdark for me so it's just i'm not the target audience so i never even got and i couldn't watch the show because they kind of have this rule that uh if i'm gonna watch a movie or a show or you know, about a book i want to be able to read the book too and knowing that we'll never get an ending, I just couldn't start it. I couldn't do that to myself. Yeah, yeah. I don't like that. That's why I don't – well, I shouldn't say I don't write open-ended series. My Portals of Infinity series is currently open-ended. I don't know when or how I'm going to end that. The end game scenario has kind of been made clear. If you read the books, you can understand it. But the book – the series was written with the intention of being able to write it for as long as I want. And these days I write right. a book. Because my fans, it has a lot of fans. People like it. And as long as people are enjoying it and I'm enjoying it, I'll, I'll keep doing it. But it, it's almost more of a hobby at this point to, to write those. That's what I'm trying to get work done right now. So I, I, I get, I just realized when I said that I wouldn't start it because it didn't look like it's going to get an ending. Like I'm willing to start on new series with authors, even long going ones. When, you know, like, I'm not convinced that Terry Mixon will have ended his Empire of Bone series before he dies, but that's just because he's going to be on, like, book a 1,000, and he's going <laughs> to keep going. And I'm okay with it. Like, as long as they're still writing, I'll give him a chance and keep going back to books I, series I like. But it's different when you come at it and the book's already been, like, hanging for a while, right? Because I didn't find his books till I was an adult anyway. And at that yeah. point in time, the running joke was already he's never going to finish the series. Well, on the Portals um, of Infinity series I have, each book – is more or less standalone. Um, the first okay. two books really are kind of an arc together, and then there's a, and there's a sub arc of like the first six books, which is actual an arc. As you read the books, while each book is standalone, as you go along, you realize there's an arc going on, and that arc is closed in book six. Book seven of that particular series, which is called Kaiju, is actually a homage to the guy who did Godzilla. And there's a tremendous oh. amount about him in that book. And I use the um, the whole instrument of the book and the portals and, and being able to go place to actually do his history and talk about him and have a lot of discussion about the things he did. And he's kind of like, you know, they're trying to trace his steps 
through a bunch of stuff because they because they've actually found one of these monsters. They're trying to kill it. And everybody's like, but he just made these up. And you find out that no, actually, he was a portal jumper for a while after World War II, and he actually found these monsters. <clears throat> so, and the whole original Godzilla thing was just him telling a story about a place he really went to. Um Okay. And I had a lot of fun with that because he was actually a really cool guy. Then after that, I started um, a sub arc. That's a it's a three book series that has a bunch of stuff, and I just wrapped that up last year. So, but the books tend to be standalone or they're sub arc, so you can get to a point and say, okay, you know, you know where things are. It's not like you're left hanging. I don't like to leave people hanging. Yeah. There's that uns. Well, I know. <laughs> Saying there's an unspoken agreement with your readers to finish series that you start is that upsets some authors, but I at least have that unspoken agreement that I will finish whatever I start. And uh, and I, I as a reader, I can appreciate that as well when other authors do the same. So. Yeah, well, it's two reasons. At first, I mean, you have things like um, oh, what was the name of that particular series again? Ah, that's driving me up the wall. But uh, one of the Japanese series, it just goes uh, on and on and on and never ends. You know, the long ones I don't mind, like, uh, ten, uh, I can't remember, the name, not Tenshi Moyo, the, the Ronin one, the reverse blade. Um, that was a long series, but it was good. It had an ending. It wrapped up. It made sense. We've got the other one with the demon wolf, and it just keeps going on and on and on. Right. And it's like, and I really dislike Patrick Rothfuss with the hate of a, you know, a thousand burning suns because he killed trilogies. He absolutely killed trilogies. And I found this out the hard way because I put out a book and it sold really well, but it was going to be a trilogy. And it, actually, I finished it. It's uh, Days of Future Past, which is a science fiction trilogy with some other interesting stuff put in it. Some time travel, post-apocalypse crap and all that. And um, when people realized it was a trilogy, they said, well, I'm not buying the second book until the third book is done because we want to know you're going to do it because Pathogrofa screwed us all. Because he's never going to yeah. write the book because he didn't write the first two. And um, so, okay, now I can't sell book two until, so I got to change my schedule, got to get book three out, rush it out. It's shorter. It's about 20,000 words shorter than it was originally intended to be because I'm like, screw it. These people are going to be this way. I'll wrap up the series, do all the things, get it out, put the book out. And it's a good book, but I really wanted to delve into a bit more of the certain spirituality stuff. Cause there's a lot of American Indian lore in that trilogy. <clears throat> um, and, but at that point, everybody who bought the first book has forgotten about the next two, you know, they've lost track of it cause it's been over a year since the first book. Cause I wrote, you know, I wrote the first book nine months, wrote the second, maybe it might've been longer than that. And then I ended up having to rush through the third one. Now, people are starting to rediscover it and read it, and they really enjoy it. It's got some great reviews from some big people, but it was just because of the whole trilogy thing. So I don't write trilogies anymore. If you're going to write a trilogy, don't publish book one until book three is done. So then you can say the books are done. Here's the release schedule. Then people will follow through. Um, on my big um, Balanced Legacy series under the Jan Striven or Jan Striven. I pronounce it Jan, but some people say Jan because I got it from Jan Hammer group. <clears throat> the um, I had it plotted exactly how many books it was going to be. It was three six-book arcs 
And if the if it didn't sell well by in the first arc, I was only going to take it to this book six. But I was going to complete it no matter what. And I was putting out a book a month. You know, in, in course of about two years, I wrote like 20 books because I wrote those and two others. And uh, it was a very hectic schedule, but I wanted everybody to know that this was going to come out, that this was going to be ongoing, that this had a planned ending, that I knew where the series was going, and that was plotted out. Uh, so people, nobody thought it was just going to go on forever because you see a lot of people with open-ended series. And also it wasn't short. Most people don't want to write past five or six books. I mean, if you had told me five years ago I was going to write an 18-book series, I'd tell you you were insane. And if you told me how many copies I was going to sell and how well it was going to do, then I'd ask what you were smoking and could I have some too? <laughs> but, uh, that was a roller coaster. Sometimes they surprise you what uh, what fans latch onto and what they don't. So well, <clears throat> I was pretty confident it was going to do well because um, I write men's adventure. That's my niche market at its most basic is men's adventure because none of the none of the real trad five publish that or will publish that. The majority of what they write are books for women because women are the big market. Women are now like eighty percent of the book buying market, and women authors. Are like 80% of the market too. So women read most books, women write most books. Men have moved on to video games because there wasn't anything being written that they enjoyed. So I hit this niche market and started going for it. And I started doing very well in it. Um, Portals of Infinity, one of the things it got labeled as, which I always found kind of strange, it was labeled as a harem book. Because the guy, you have this young man, 21 years old, he's suddenly given power, money, and fame. And he knows how to deal with everything. So he starts womenizing. And uh, he ends up, because he's going to different realities, but he's basically in these two different realities the most, he ends up with a wife in each one. And so, and he has girlfriends on the side because he never turns down a pretty face because he's in his 20s. He's like a rock star, you know? He'll sleep with anything if it's cute and wants him. And because he's rich, famous, and powerful, yeah, a lot of women want him. And I was just writing a young man being a young man. Um, and it took off. It got me that kind of a label. So the hair market started taking off. And I, I test launched a book that I'd never meant to publish originally until I showed it to my patrons on Patreon. They were like, oh, you got to publish this. Because it's, it's pretty dark in a lot of ways. The hero is really a sociopath. Um, and so I decided to do the whole Valens legacy thing, planned it all out. Uh, me and a bottle of Jameson's, a large bottle of Jameson's one night, planned it all out in my old office, in my other house on board that was right there. And I was like, okay, I'm considered to be one of the kings of harem writing now, an action adventure for men and stuff, especially in indie. There's two other people who were very big in this, Michael Scott Earl and William D. Arand. And I said, okay, I'm going to give people a real story. I'm going to drive something that's got a deep, long, contrived plot that has very deep characters with lots of heavy character development. You know, every, every single wife this character ends up with over the course of the books is going to have this long backstory. We're going to see it. And we're going to spend time with each of these women where we'll have chapters of just them you know, doing stuff so we can see that they're strong, smart people who have these definite, 
you know, they're bringing something to the relationship and they have needs and everything else. And, um, and I, I wrote it and I was at a convention after about book seven and suddenly all these women are coming up to me and showing me on their Kindles that they have the book, that they've been reading the series. And that's when I discovered half of my fans for this Men's Adventure, which is supposed to be harem, which women are not supposed to like, everyone tells us. Half my fans are women. Um, when I moved to Texas and I'm going to the gym here, one of the guys I'm working out with is telling me, oh, yeah, my wife reads all your stuff. She loves it. So <laughs> that was a huge surprise for me. And I think it came, though, because I didn't write my the female characters of cardboard cutouts for the guy to save and, you know, to be praised by and um, just to be there so he can, you know, be the white knight or the king or whatever. No, they're, they have very deep interrelated, you know, relationships. Um, you know, I've, okay, I have been in, in relationships like that myself in the past. So I understand how these dynamics work. Um, so it wasn't hard for me to bring some of it to light because I've had some experience with it, but, you know, I, so I, I find it kind of funny when people, I've had, I've heard it actually said by people after I got the, the contract with Bain to start doing stuff for them about, well, he's just a harem author. It's like, well, yeah, have you read the books? Because actually the harem is just, it's such a small part of the story, but it was, I knew people would enjoy it. I knew it would get me sales. I knew it would get me out into the market, and I knew I could do it well, and I thought it was fun. I had fun with it. I enjoyed it. Um, okay. So <laughs> we'll get back to introducing you as an author, but it's okay. Sometimes these uh, tangents can be fun. So what was your first love? As a, Was it sci-fi or fantasy? Science fiction. Hard science Do you remember, do you remember what the first sci-fi you read was? It was something by Heinlein. I don't remember which one, but I started with uh, Heinlein. Um, my sister was a science fiction fan, my older sister, way older sister. And I started reading stuff of hers. Also, Tom Swift Jr. I really like those. You could go through those real quick, the old ones. They, they've redone them. They've changed stuff. I think they've made them politically correct. <clears throat> but they were kind of fun because you could read one in like an hour or two. And, you know, they had some interesting turns of phrases, which they now call Swifties. Um, you know, things like he exclaimed exuberantly or something like that. But um, they were kind of fun. They had a certain level of science in them, which made them interesting. Uh, so I, I read a bunch of those, too, uh, because that was an ongoing series. But it was mostly Heinlein and then Zelazny or Zelaney, however you say his name. He wrote some great stuff, and he's the one who hooked me on first-person singular, which I still write in on occasion today because I love that style. Okay. So what is it about speculative fiction as an umbrella genre that you love so much? <clears throat> um, because it's the possibilities of what can be done. I mean, look at some of the old speculative fiction written back in the 40s and the 50s, you know, the golden age even in the 60s, and look at how much of that stuff has become real or yeah. how much of that stuff do we not understand. You know, um, there was a book written by Lester Durrell, Del Rey called Nerves, and it's about a um, meltdown in a nuclear power plant. 
This was written while the uh, Manhattan Project was ongoing. Okay, so all this stuff was highly secret. He wrote this based on the science as he understood it. And he got a lot of questions from the government who were like, how did you learn about this? How did you find out about this? How do you know about this? And he was, well, I'm just following the science because he knew science. Um, it's just the whole thing of the future and where are we going? I mean, I was a huge fan of the space program. I grew up with it. I mean, I was born in 59. And I watched all the launches. I mean, my dad bought a color TV so we could watch the Apollo launches in color. Uh, nice. Caven National Labs was about a 10, 15 minute drive from my house and people in my neighborhood worked there. Drummond Aerospace, which built the LEM. Uh, a lot of people in my neighborhood worked there. I eventually worked there uh, many years later. Uh, Marconi Radio was in uh, not far from where I lived. And my dad was a phone company repairman. And he used to, for a number of reasons, because he was very good and very smart, he worked in these places. When they had difficult jobs in these places, they sent him to deal with it. So he'd come back with all this promotional literature from Grumman about the moonshots, from Brookhaven National Labs about stuff they were working on, Marconi Radio, um, all sorts of places, Fairchild Republic, um, and he'd bring it home and I, you know, I just vacuum this stuff up. There were a lot of very smart people in my neighborhood. Um, so that really, uh, hooked me on a lot of it. I mean, they call Long Island the cradle, cradle of aviation because uh, most aircraft companies at one point or another started on Long Island, very few exceptions. Oh, I didn't know and that. They off. Sikorsky started there. Uh, it's just huge and a lot of um other technological companies started there there was just used to have a lot of very smart people i mean einstein used to teach uh, one of the school one of the colleges on long island um there are all these very smart people there um one of my college professors who lived on long island worked on the manhattan project and he had some funny stories about that so i imagine yeah, these these are the things being in that kind of environment. And in the 60s, everything was tech. Everything was go, 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 or, you know, get a man on the moon. <clears throat> and everybody was pushing for that. So, you know, I have a theory that when the society is in growth, people are interested more in speculative fiction because they want an idea of what the future is going to bring. And when a society is in depression or having hard times, then people turn to fantasy because they want their escapism. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so that's one of the things that always amused me. They had in 2016 one of the scientists that worked on the the original NASA missions to when we were still just trying to send a monkey to space. And so I asked him when the you know because he was also involved in the moon landing. I said, how soon after the moon landing before people started? Oh no, that was fake. You didn't really do it. It was a st uh, studio, or whatever. And he goes, "Yeah, uh, I was on my way home, or so I just walked in my, you know, my home, and my mother-in-law was calling me asking how we faked it." So, <laughs> it, it amuses me how well, how quickly some of that stuff started. Yeah, but, yeah. There, there was um, it, it, so many people. You know, one of my friends, his grandfather didn't believe it at all, but you know, he was an old Italian man born in Italy before planes existed. Yeah. So you can understand where the people just can't believe this is happening, that it's just too much or too too far beyond. Um, but 
you know, so I started out as a science fiction writer. My gateway really into kind of getting into fantasy was a dream I had back in 2000. 2000, 2001, I forget. I got a, I, I sit down. I was visiting a friend. I was in Mountain View uh, down in Silicon Valley. And I had this incredibly realistic dream. Now, I used to play D&D a lot. So the ending actually comes from a thing my old GM, who's a very dear friend of mine, had told about they did in, this, in uh, one of the campaigns long when he was in college or other high school. But I had this very realistic dream. And it had the beginning was quite clear. The ending was quite clear. And there were sections along. I wrote it all down, and my girlfriend at the time was Lisa Ann Norman, who was a, uh, a best-selling author for Daw. Um, she, she wrote the Sholin Alliance series. And she says, oh, that'll be great. You need to make that a book. And I tried several times to write it, never could. And I didn't know what was wrong with it. And it wasn't until I started really publishing stuff and writing seriously after – I put out my first science fiction books that I, I took a detour for a while and I wrote paranormal romance for two years under a pen name. And I will never tell you what that name was. <laughs> it did. I was about to ask you too. <laughs> it did very well, made me a nice little piece of money, but, and it was, it was aimed at a woman audience. It was very much aimed at the women audience of paranormal romance. And, you know, it, it was fun for a little while, but my heart really wasn't in it. But what I learned women are a tough audience. So if you can please women readers with your story and your plot and your characters, you're really doing well, especially when you're telling them you're a woman writer and you're male. Um, but I learned a lot from that because the women readers are also very quick to re you know review and leave comments in that genre, at least they used to be. So you could immediately, you'd hear the mistakes you made or you'd hear the things you did well. And so you could use that feedback to go, okay, this is what I have to do. And I actually credit a lot of my character development skills to that because I really learned how to develop characters. Because if you're writing a novella that's, well, yeah, a novella that's like 12 to 18,000 words long, you have a short plot and you have to have these characters and you want to sell them. You got to get that character development. You got to get to it quick and you got to nail it down fast so it sells the rest of the story. And then you, you learn about the reveals and stuff and how to put the little twists in here and there and how to bring those out. Um, honestly, if, if you want to learn to write, write for women because you will learn. They're a tough crowd and they will let you know if you're doing well or doing not. And you will learn a lot from it. Um, I know I did, but I took the next time I tried to rewrite that fantasy story, and it's urban fantasy, it's modern day fantasy. I grabbed, I was trying to write a traditional uh, paranormal romance story. There, there are traditional forms and it wasn't working for me and my heart really wasn't in writing that anymore. So I'd set it aside. I said, you know, I have this developed backstory for this character and that's what the hero is missing in this story I've been trying to write. There's no backstory. There's no motivation. We don't know why he's doing the things he's doing. You know, in a short story, you can get away with that. But in a novel, no, they got to have a motivation. And even if you never come out and tell everybody what the motivation is, the reader will eventually figure it out because we're all pattern recognition machines. And we start to, we see people doing certain things over and over again. And 
we start to connect it to stuff in our own past. And it gives us an idea of why that person is doing the things, who they are and what they are. And so I dropped that in there. And now the whole story worked. And I wrote it in about a, a couple of weeks after that. I was writing mostly on weekends then because I was working full time as a consultant. And, um, and it worked. It worked really well. And uh, it did okay. So then I wrote the sequel to that. And the sequel to that became a top 10 bestseller in numerous categories on Amazon. And then everyone went back and bought the first one and drove it back up. And that was when I started realizing that, okay, I think I have, I think I'm onto something here. Um, Portals of Infinity, which is my first big series, and it's the second biggest series I've had to date. I wrote that actually a couple of years prior to its being published, quite a, probably about eight years prior. And I'd sat on it and I didn't know what to do with it. Well, after that and understanding a few things, I went back, rewrote it, broke the first book, which was huge, into two books, published those one, and then a few months later published the other one. And um, that was when I had my first five-digit week. I mean, my first five-digit month was uh, with that book. And that's when I realized I can do it full time. That I, I, I had hit the nail on the head. I knew what I was doing. I knew how to give people what they wanted. Um, so, okay. yeah. So many authors will let their own real life experience sort of influence the stories they tell. So were there any form, uh, specific formidable moments that you think shape you as a storyteller? Oh, yeah. Every single one of them. Uh, I draw on my past constantly. You know, write what you know is what they say a lot. And I tend to pull on that quite a bit. Now, sometimes I pull on things that didn't happen to me, happened to people I knew, and I either saw it or I got to hear about it, um, and I will pull on that stuff. But I've, I've had a pretty varied life. I've done a lot of things, a lot of things that most people would consider to be crazy or insane. Um, but I wanted to experience things, you know, it's like that, that old saying, life's a journey, enjoy the ride. So I've, every time I had a chance to try new things or do new things, I would usually go for it. Um, I mean, right now I'm learning paramotoring because I want to see if I want to do it. So I've just started taking paramotoring lessons. I'm a certified pilot, you know, rather I'm a licensed pilot, uh, scuba diver, certified in that. Um, so many things I honestly can't remember off the top of my head. I have motorcycles. I've raced motorcycles, both legally and illegally. Um, <laughs> I used to have statute of limitations. You're okay. <laughs> uh, I, you know, wrenched on a lot of cars. I've had a lot of cars. I mean, I had a car once that I used to race on the street, and I've done 160 in that car. Um, I used to hang out with a lot of very sketchy people. Um, especially back in my Harley motorcycle days, I used to hang out with a lot of the different clubs at different times. I'd go to the rides. Um, I had some very close friends who were in with certain groups and I would go to, you know, the parties and hang out with these people and stuff and, you know, connect, tell stories, listen to bullshit. Um, I used to raise big cats. I was involved in dealing with wild and exotic cats as a hobby, as a hobbyist, if you call it that, for about 20 years. Um, and it was very rewarding and also very expensive, uh, cause food bills will kill you. But I got to meet a lot of very famous animal trainers that way and, and talk to people. I'm actually one of the world's leading experts on clouded leopards, believe it or not. Um, 
I know a lot about snow leopards. I've dealt, I've handled clouded leopards. Um, my ex, one of my exes had clouded leopards. Actually, she's more like, um, she's passed away. So, but uh, snow leopards, um, I've dealt with, the only, the only big cat I've never dealt with is a cheetah. Everything else, yes. Um, okay. I've raised and trained my own. So just all sorts of weird stuff. I used to hike a lot. I used to camp in the mountains a lot. Um, go out on the ocean, sailing, all that stuff. And then as an engineer, I started in aerospace. And I got to work on a lot of crazy technologies. <clears throat> I worked on proof of concept for GPS. Uh, so I got to nice. understand a lot of that stuff very well. Because, yeah, we were looking at using it to bomb, you know, an aircraft and supersonic aircraft. So I've worked on tactical nuclear missile systems and all that crap. Um, I left that. I went into the medical field. I worked in medical research for a while as a QA and test engineer. And it's a lot more involved than people realize because there was a lot of getting into the, the code and the specs and everything like that. Um, then I went into regular industry and test and measurement. And then I was just all over the map after that. Any interesting technology that came along, I would take a contract. Uh, you know, I had a lot of um, skills. I had a lot of experience. I was pretty much in demand, but I traveled a lot. And after a while, I got really sick of traveling. You know, okay. it's like when it gets to the point that, especially after, you know, when the TSA stuff first hit, I'm a big white guy. I got searched constantly. They're always pulling me out of the line for a search and pat down and everything else. Oh, here comes my dog. He just let himself in. And <laughs> uh, yeah, he does that. So that was annoying. But then when they started having the TSA preferred and all that stuff, then I'm flying so much that, yeah, you just go to the, you know, the other line because we've got all the records on you. So we're not going to even bother you anymore. And uh, it gets old after a while. You know, it's fun when you're young, but when you get older, traveling, being away from home, you know, for uh, 20 days out of 30 or 25 days out of 30. It's like, I don't know how the guys who fly for the airlines do it. I, 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 that got old real quick. So we've talked a little bit about you've been all over the map with your jobs. At one point in time, you served in the U.S. Air Force. So do yeah. you feel like your time as a Zoomie affects the way you tell stories or the way you write characters? I don't know. It, it, it affects the way I just deal with certain military stuff. Right. And the, Air, the Air Force is a lot more um, formal, strict, uh, well-mannered. They don't curse anywhere near like the rest. I mean, you know, curse like a sailor. Yeah, I... I have a friend who's a retired NFO, and uh, oh yeah, sailors curse, and the army guys curse a fair bit too. The Air Force used to get on your case about it if you curse too much. It had an image to, to preserve. It, I understand some of the power dynamics though, and, and some of the things I, I got from that. Um, but I think I learned more about military life. Well, sometimes more about military life with all the DOD work I did because that was about ten years of my life working different aspects of defense. So do you ever draw on people you knew when you were working uh, both as an airman and uh, working for DOD? Uh, not really. Um, all the people I know when I was in the service, uh, I've lost touch with pretty much all of them. Um, so I don't really, it wasn't a, a very large group of people. Um, and and all the upper officers, of course, who knows if they're still alive now. 
But the DOD people, occasionally, but too many of those people, again, we all just scattered to all sorts of different places. And every time you work a different contract or a different group, I mean, it's a whole new group of people. And sometimes these people may be around for two weeks. Sometimes they may be around for two years. And then everybody goes off to different ends of the earth. Um, so running into these people again is just incredibly rare because, uh, you know, you're everywhere. And usually they send you to the worst places in the country, too. So so you, you talked a little bit about how your time working for the DOD and as an airman affects the way you create stories. Do you think it changes the way you engage with content as a reader? No, I honestly don't think it changes it that much. Though certain stuff I'll see and I'll be like, okay, no, that's wrong. It's like there was a, I forget who wrote it. I was going to write this guy a letter, but I suspect he probably got a lot. But it was one of those love, death, and robots things. And they have the two guys who are werewolves, and one's an enlisted and one's an officer. And the act, the uh, interface they're showing between the enlisted and the officer, you know, there's rules against that. <laughs> it's right. And then there's the way um, they, you know, the, the the senior officer is treating the junior officer. Okay, I've seen stuff like that, but on the way he did it, yeah, they'd have you out. They'd have your bags packed and out the door with a dishonorable discharge in about 24 hours if you, if you said shit like that in real life. And I don't care what branch of service you're in because there's certain things they just do not allow. And that goes back to when they integrated the, you know, the Army and the Air Corps and the Marines and the Navy. They came down with a lot of hard rules about certain things you're just not allowed to do and not allowed to say. And they will go after you if you do them because you know it's discriminatory. And the whole thing is we're not trying to divide our troops. We're trying to bring our troops together. So... And the other thing, too, is if you're in a military unit, you're if you're in any kind of a unit and you got some person who is different, but they have skills that make your day or can save your life. No, you don't make those people other. You like make those people, hey, man, you know, you're my best friend because you might save my life or you may do something to keep me from getting in trouble. And those are much more uh, germane things to soldiers. You know, it's, you want the people, if there's someone out there who has a skill that's going to save your life, then yeah. It's like, I don't know if you ever saw that movie about the Red Tails, you know, the, the first group of black aviators in World I, War II. I've seen it, yeah. The bottom crews would, like, it'd pay those guys drinks, you know, they'd pay for all their drinks and their food. They'd be like, no, man, your money's not good here because you saved our asses. We don't care what color you are. You saved our lives. We'll cover your bill. You know, that's how they felt about a lot of these guys. They, you know, they knew what was important. And, and you don't have time for a lot of that crap in any kind of a place where life is dangerous or you could get in trouble for doing stupid shit. So that, I found that whole thing to be like, yeah, the guy who wrote this wasn't in the military ever. Yeah. So, so you do on that stuff sometimes. So transitioning away from the writing side a little bit to a fan angle. So have you gotten any cool fan art or cosplay yet? Um, I, not really much. I, there's a couple of things that came by in fan art. They weren't terribly great, but they were kind of funny. Uh, cosplay, I have yet to see anybody do cosplay. Um, I did get from one of my fans, which blew me away. I got this. Uh, one of the characters, let me pull this back a bit, center it. One of the characters in the Valens Legacy series, uh, one of the hero's wives, 
She's a dark elf. She's also assassin. She's a highly trained assassin, and she has a thing for knives. She's always loaded down with them that you'd never be able to tell because she has this love of skin-tight clothing. Um, usually she has a vest on that she hides them in, and she is just a total knife fanatic. And so that's my Cali knife. Um, that knife was made for for her. And I was kind of shocked when this guy calls, you know, starts calls me up and says, "Hey, I got a knife for you that I made for for one of your characters." That's kind of cool. Really cool. <laughs> it was so, incredibly cool. Uh, that, that's a win when you when you reach that level as an author. So has anybody asked for your autograph yet? I get asked for it at cons. Uh, people who have the paperbacks usually. Um, I've had a few people, I had one guy once come by at, um, I used to sell books at, at comic cons and one guy came by and he didn't have a book and he said he had the book and he asked, he had a, a thing from the comic con and he asked me to sign that. So I signed that. That one, I was a little, I don't know, different, but Hey, if someone's a fan and they want to, you know, want my signature, sure. Why not? Now, do you sell signed copies from your website? Uh, if people want them now? Currently I don't. Um, I'm in the process of actually redoing my website. The whole thing is undergoing a change. Uh, I have the old website up. I'm a little hesitant to sell stuff because I do. I have done um, Kickstarters on, on Dan's Inferno, which is a four-book series. Originally going to be five for different reasons. Got cut to four. I may write book five eventually. Anyway, I kickstarted all the audiobooks, pay for the audiobooks. And I gave out a lot of stuff for those. And I signed books was one of the things, uh, you know, a full copy of signed books. I made challenge coins. That's okay. one side. That's my logo. That's the logo for Strivant, and that's the logo for Van Stry. Okay. That's so cool. I do sell challenge coins. I just, the problem is with, with selling stuff and shipping it, Shipping is, it turned out, is very expensive. And shipping stuff outside of this country is a nightmare, especially this oh, yeah. in Europe. I sent somebody a book and a coin, and five months later, it came back because German customs was being pedantic assholes because on one of the forms, they claimed there wasn't the right information. But on the other form, it was all there. And the law says the other form is the one that matters. But they didn't care. And they sat on it, like I said, for about four or five months. And then they kicked it back to me. So I'd be hot. You know, the book <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, so it's like, and, and it's expensive. You know, sending stuff overseas is very expensive. And the paperwork, you got to do customs declarations and this, that, and everything else. So I really kind of avoid that now. So the trick is going to be finding you at a convention if you want something signed. Um, well, you know, for some people, if they contact me and they desperately want it or really want it, I will do it. I had a fan contacted me who wanted all 18 books of the Valens Legacy series, and he wanted them all signed, and he wanted them all made out to him. Cool. And um, I looked up the price of the books that they cost me. I threw a few bucks on extra to cover shipping and stuff. I said, okay. Also a little for my time and effort. This is how much if you want it. And he sent me the money, so I sent him the books. Um, i have been talking with the guy on and off for a while, so I knew he was a huge fan. And I figured, you know, if he wants it that bad, then he's willing to pay for it. Yeah, I'll do it. That is cool. 
So have you ever spotted anyone out in public reading your books? Unfortunately, no. And if anyone ever does, send me an email or with a picture or something. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping when the Bane book comes out, that'll become a little more common or possible. Right. No, that's in bookstores. I suspect it's going to get a little better distribution. I mean, I have pretty good sales. Um, the Valens Legacy series has sold over a million copies at this point. It's it's done very well for me. Um, but if I'm not at a convention and stuff, you know, I'm not going to, nobody's going to come up out on the streets because most people don't even know what I look like. I live right. way out country now. I no longer live in, you know, for quite a while I was living in California, but I've moved back out of California, got back out into the country. So it's not like I really run into these people. I mean, I went to my local library at one point and asked if they wanted any help from me. And they were like, no, blah, blah, blah. All right, well, here's my stuff. And then I run into the librarian and she goes, man, I, I asked one of my friends to look at you, you know, look into you. And she says, you got to hold on to this guy because he's one hell of a writer. You should see how much stuff he's put out. When I get my Bane book and they send me some readers copies, I'll go down and donate one to the local library. But yeah, it's I really don't think I have any tremendous amount of fame. Um, my original goal is not to get any fame. My original goal was just to be successful. Uh, now I see people who just are promoting the hell out of themselves and they have like one or two books out and they're promoting all this stuff about them and they're making the whole message about them. And I think to myself, Maybe I should start trying to promote myself more and get my my face and my name out there more because I have a very good career as a writer. I've been very blessed and I've been very successful. And it's not easy in the business, especially not as a uh, independent author, you know, to do that because it used to be advertising was easy. Well, advertising is now hard because. You know, Google controls half of it and Facebook controls the other half and Facebook screws with their stuff. So you don't get what you pay for. And it's very hard to figure it out. You know, they I don't know if they intentionally make it hard or if they just hired idiots. And Google is like, unless you are like a big famous company, they don't even want us to see you and sell you banner ads and banner ads are what sell. Um, you know, just things that, you know, the paid for spots on the, on the web, on the um, search engine, nah, they don't sell, they don't really drive any business to you. So it's all word of mouth and things like that. And it's, it's gotten harder. I mean, advertising is definitely the hardest part there is of this job. Yeah. So do you have any weird or funny interactions that you've had with fans since you started writing? Um, there's been a few at cons and people may make quotes from stories and emails. I get some really, I get some really wild emails. I've gotten emails from Navy SEALs, uh, talking about small unit tactics. I got, um, uh, from artillery guy who wanted me to come out to Fort Dill and take a tour. And I am sorry to this day. I never took it up with Fort Dill or Fort Bragg, Fort Bragg, I think it was, um, uh, you know, to show me artillery pieces because there's a whole bunch of stuff. In the Valens Legacy, when you get about into about the last half to the last third, you start getting going, you know, you, you go from small unit tactics to big unit tactics. And I've got air power, artillery, all this kind of stuff going on. And I've got tanks in combat. I've got howitzers and shelling and, you know, indirect shelling and all that stuff. And for that, I have a friend I talked to 
Jonathan, and uh, he helped a lot because he was an artillery man over in the sandbox. So he knows like all the stuff. So uh, he was very, very helpful. And um, there was, so I got some of that. Okay, I'd forgotten about this one. This one I think is hysterical. In the Valens Legacy, the whole thing is about, It's it starts off, this kid, his father was a big, powerful enchanter. Nobody knows, by the way, about lichens or magic users or any of that stuff. Everybody's hidden by what they call the silence. And the, the people in charge of the lichens, the head lichens, the top dogs of the lichen culture, had came to him and asked for cure for silver. And he discovered it. After, you know, many thousands of years, he figured out how to do this. <clears throat> he gets assassinated by the other magic users who don't want this getting out, so on and so forth. The son goes through all this crap. Eventually, he inherits his father's notes. That, you know, his father figured out a way to leave them to him. And he starts going through everything, and he realizes that the way his father figured this out was he was transmuting silver into rhodium, which you can do with the time, you know, splitting atoms and stuff like that. You split off an alpha particle and generates so much energy. I, because I'm an engineer and I had some pretty heavy science courses, I actually did all the math, did all the reactions, did everything to figure out how it all worked. And so I do this whole thing, and then I have how they're dealing with the radiation, how they're capturing this, how they're capturing that. And a lot of it I bring up in the story, though I don't go into the math except for in a couple of places in, in the in the offhand comments, it's mentioned how much energy is generated from an ounce of silver going undergoing this process, turning into rhodium. This physicist calls me, well, he doesn't call me, he sends me an email. And he starts asking me all these questions about the nuclear decay. And I'm going through all the things and I'm going through the math with him back and forth. And I go, yeah, yeah. And he's like, I guess, amazed that I got all this shit right because he couldn't believe it. I guess that some author in some book, you know, I guess he didn't realize I have a BSEE and one of my props worked on the Manhattan Project. And finally, we get to the thing. He goes, how are you triggering the original alpha decay? You know, the alpha particle I said magic. Oh, my God. Did he blow up <laughs> on that? I'm like, what? You thought I discovered some new thing and I'm just using a story to tell everyone? If, if I knew how to do this crap, do you think I'd be telling it in a oh. book? I'd be out earning billions of dollars in, in the industry. I, it just, I had to laugh so hard at that. He thought I had discovered some new thing. And then when I said, well, they're using magic to do this. That was funny. <laughs> I laughed yeah, it's always, it's always amazing where people's line in the sand is. It's like, you're with me on X, Y, and Z, but this is where you draw the line. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. uh, before we get in and we're going to dive deep into the uh, the Valance legacy and uh, the novel specifically, we're going to take a moment where we shamelessly shill for the man. In a galaxy tied together by the magic of the elite jump mages, new graduate Damian Montgomery is in search of his first assignment. Without elite blood ties and high-powered connections, he can't find a ship to sign on to. A pirate attack left David White with a damaged freighter and a dead jump mage. The dead mage's grieving father blacklists him and makes it impossible to hire a replacement. Without a mage to jump his ship, he's stranded. When their desperate needs meet, Damien is drawn into a conflict with the most powerful criminal organization in the galaxy and draws the attention of the Mage King of Mars himself. 
Starship's Mage, the first book in a science fantasy series by Glenn Stewart, is available on Kindle and Audible. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. So, all right. Sorry about that. There was a little bit of a technical difficulty. So if it's a little jarring jump, we apologize. But uh, John, you were just telling us about um, some of the series that you've written, your your body of work. Could you give us the Reader's Digest version of that real quick before we start talking about the book we're here for? Sure. Now, under my name, um, I have Children of Steel Universe. Children of Steel was the first novel I ever wrote. That's very science fiction. Um, <clears throat> most of the books are standalone, but a lot of the characters do intersect at different points in the stories. I have the Hammer Commission series, which is my first urban fantasy. It's about a secret society that exists in the world today that hunts demons, devils, that kind of stuff through the church. Um, they're the front lines in the ongoing war between heaven and hell kind of a thing. Uh, and there's a lot of other stuff into it. He ends up working for the FBI. Um, I have Days of Future Past, which is a trilogy, uh, combines science fiction, a touch of time travel, um, and certain uh, mysticism, because there's a lot of stuff about American Indian um, gods in it, and it, take, it takes place in the future, and I think I'm missing one. Oh, Portals of Infinity, yeah, I could have missed that, we talked about that before. <clears throat> Portals of Infinity is an ongoing series, uh, all, there are an infinite number of realities. And this place is referred to as the infinite. And all these different realities are attached by these portals. And only a small percentage of the population can see them. And people who go through them are called portal jumpers. Um, well, a lot of these realities have gods or goddesses that run them. And they play their own games of power and intrigue and everything else. And it's about a guy who ends up working. He's re actually recruited to work for God in one of the realities. And about all the adventures that happen to him after that. So that's all the stuff under John Van Stry. Under uh, Jen Strivent, um, the first book is called Shadow. That was my test market for um, the, the pen name. Because the big difference is things under my name are fade to black. Things under Jan Strivent are more explicit. There's usually a couple explicit sex scenes. Because it turns out these days a lot of people want to see explicit sex scenes. And I'm in the entertainment business. And I'm supposed to give people what they want. So... I'm kind of tired of writing them, but eh, people enjoy it, so why not? <clears throat> that book is a superhero book, actually. Though the guy who is it's about, he's a lot of people consider him to be, you know, a bad guy, uh, a supervillain. No, he's not really. He's a sociopath. Um, he's really screwed up in a lot of ways. He's also incredibly powerful. And he spent the first, like, 20 years 20 plus years, it starts around at 30, hunting down child predators and murdering them. And because he's an avenger, he avenges a certain crime. Um, he breaks from that eventually and decides he wants to try to have a normal life or as normal as he can have. And it's just a continuing story about this. It's very episodic. Um, I never intended to publish it when I wrote it because it's pretty nasty and pretty dark in places. I actually cleaned it up a little bit when my friends told me that I should put it out. After that came the Valens Legacy series. Valens Legacy is 18 books long. Um, it originally completed in 17 books because I shortened it a little bit due to certain circumstances. And it's in three major story arcs uh, as the series progresses and grows. Um, 
a lot of people wanted me to write a sequel series to it, and I finally decided to do that. So I wrote book 18, which takes place after the events of 17. Same characters in 17, but it's like a year later, and we're seeing how things develop, and it sets the stage for the next series. Um, I also have Dan's Inferno, which is a very short series. Um, that was just supposed to be a short four or five book series. It's a bit raunchy, but it was written to be fun and just to be fun. It was pure escapism. And that's about a guy who lives in San Francisco, not San Francisco, sorry, Sacramento, and learns the hard way that, yes, not only is magic real, though it's not as powerful as people think it is, but he's been cursed with a really nasty curse that's going to eventually end up him dying. And he ends up getting entangled with this demon, who I actually have a picture for on the wall back there, um, that a friend of mine drew like 20 years ago. And she gets tangled up in his curse. She wants to kill him. She can't kill him, but she wants him to die so she can be free. And he's like, if he kills her, he'll be free of his curse. And so they kind of come to an understanding that they're going to help each other out to get rid of his curse. So then they'll all be uncursed. Um, and that was kind of fun. There's a lot of little crazy things in that. But Valance Legacy was the big one. And it's because now I'm writing books in Valance Heritage, which is the follow-on of that. It's gotten huge. Um, you want me to go into what the Valance Legacy is about? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do that. So what was the inspiration for the Valance Legacy, specifically the book that started at All Black Friday? Like, where um, did you get the idea for for the series? Part of it came from a bottle of Jameson's, one of the really big ones. <laughs> I was I was going through a bad time, okay? I just dealt with, I'd mentioned the whole thing about the problems with trilogies and everything. And that third book had really bombed, even though it has since come back, because nobody was buying trilogies. And I was in a, I was in a dark spot, because it's like, you know, do I have to go back to consulting here? Because I I'm, didn't make the kind of money I thought I would on that. And I sat down with that and I sat down on the whiteboard and I said, okay, I'm going to do a, a series that's men's adventure, but heavy on the harem aspects. And what story am I going to tell? So I started listing on the whiteboard all the things I've done that I know are successful. And then all the things I've done that I think were failures. I did the same thing for Michael Anderley and his big uh, series. Um, I can't remember the name of it anymore, but that thing was huge. I looked at all that because I'd read several books in that, and I said, okay, what's been successful there? I went and looked at some of the stuff that Michael Scott Earl had done because uh, I'd read a lot of his stuff at that point. Uh, I guess at that point we are in the process of becoming friends. We were on good terms. Um, and I decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And the first off, okay, I like writing about big cats because I used to have them. And, I, and lycanthropes are an interesting because I played around with them a bit in the Hammer Commission because the, what the, the main character is actually a lycanthrope. And um, first I'm looking at it and it's like, I like tigers a lot, but wait, no, Michael just did tigers in his big series. So race tigers. I've never done anything with lions before. Okay, I'll do a lion. And then it started to fall into place as to how a lot of the dynamics were going to play out. Because Lions, King of the Jungle, stuff like this. And it all started falling together. I decided to make it in Reno because a lot of people don't do things in Reno. And I go to Reno a lot, or I used to when I lived in California. Because I'd go to the Reno Air Races every year. I'd go up there to visit people. So I know Reno really well. I know the whole area really well. So that gave me this setting. And then I said, okay... What's the biggest problem lichens face? They face the problem of silver. 
So, and, you know, you look at a lot of things and lycanthropes always tend to play second fiddle in a lot of um, paranormal things. You know, they're always under somebody else. And so I developed the whole thing of the magic users, the magic system, and I plot it all out. It's a story of a revolution. It's a slave revolt is really what the first six to seven books, well, more than that, but the first six books are very much about a slave revolt that's taking place in Reno. And it's all under the radar because as far as the reader knows, nobody knows that lycanthropes or magic users or any of these things exist except for the people who are. It's a big secret. <clears throat> okay. How does the book start out? You know, it starts with the media and action scene. Uh, kids at school, the hero, he's at college, he's a junior, he's getting ready to, he's coming, you know, his midterms are a week away. So is his 21st birthday, 21st birthday, which is an important thing. And one of the, the backup quarterback from the Wolves, you know, Reno, the University of Northern Reno, Nevada Wolfpack, Jerks out his car, you know, to try to scare him. Like he's going to run him down, makes him jump. A little bit of stuff because, you know, uh, there's been some tension between them. The hero at this point, he's his father died when he was eight years old, and he can't remember anything about his father. It was ruled an industrial accident. It was ruled that it was his father's fault. It was ruled all these things were done. So the family went from being very rich to having everything taken away. I mean, they came in and, and even because they sold everything at auction. And if you've ever been through bankruptcy, you're only allowed to have a certain amount of stuff. So all of his possessions just about were auctioned off to settle the debt because his oh, and the IRS hit him up for back taxes as well. So they go from being rich to it's just him and his mother living in a single wide and she's dealing at the casino. So they've got nothing. And she has a several million dollar debt to the IRS she has to pay off. Um, again, I actually know somebody who went through that. So... This is where his life is. He, When he's not in school, he's working. They live in a really poor trailer park. He's just trailer trash for the most part. He's got nothing. All he wants to do is get through college, get a degree, get a good job so him and his mom can live decent lives and, you know, he can start having a life instead of having to when he's not in school work all the time. So that's the background. So he's, you know, he's not going to fight with this guy. He's going to get his head down. Well, he walks around the block and suddenly someone puts a bag over his head and they grab him. And so he's in a fight. He thinks it's first Dean, the guy from college, just harassing him again. And then he gets tased because um, he kicks one of the guys in the nuts. And, you know, a whole bunch of stuff happens. They throw him in the back of the van. The van's taking off. The van's rocking all over the place suddenly. There's gunfire. The van crashes. He comes to. He is in, you know, he's critically wounded. He's bleeding out. And he sees this uh, thing going on where there's an actual lion man fighting this guy. And there's dead bodies everywhere and they've been shredded. And the lion, the guy shoots the guy a couple of times. The lion grabs his arm, rips it off. And he's like thinking, you know, is this Monty Python? What the hell's going on here? Because he's all dazed. The lion starts talking to him, the lion man, and knows him. And he's like, okay, what's going on? Passes out. When he comes to... He's with the guy who lives next door. It was his father's best friend. Stuck around to help the family out. He lives in the single wide next to the one they live in. His name's Samson. And Samson's a tough dude. You don't mess with Samson. Samson's dying. He says, okay, I didn't want to do this, but, you know, they had silver. They shot me. I'm dying. I have to bite you. And he's like, what? He goes, you know, I wanted you to have a normal life. I promised your father you'd have a normal life, but that ain't going to happen now. They're all out for you. 
He gets bit, passes out again. Okay, the next morning he wakes up in his bedroom and everything he's like, you know, his friends who he plays D&D with are like, where the hell were you last night? Because that was Friday night, now it's Saturday. And things start to go from there. And he, he begins to discover the girl across the track star who lives in the room across from him because they live off campus. Um, you know, she's cute and stuff and she kind of likes him, but she would never have anything to do with him because you find out she's actually a cheater where she's a lycanthrope as well. But now suddenly she realizes, wait, somebody bit him and he's a lion. And this isn't good because lions are big and tough. And if nobody helps him, he may go crazy. Lions are also, though, incredibly rare. Um, nobody knows why. We just find this out over the past course of the story. So they end up hooking up and she ends up helping him. And he begins to find out that every magic user in the world wants him. Either they want him dead or they want him so they can, you know, drain his brains because they all think that the thing his father discovered is being passed on to him and that on his 21st birthday, it will be revealed to him. And then he'll be able to free the lichens because the lichens, at this point, most of the lichens don't work for the magic users, but they keep away from them. But the all magic users, and they all live in councils, effectively, groups. And you have five major ones that are worldwide. They employ the lichens as their frontline shock troops, their servants, their slaves, their sex toys. Um, they think of them as no more than animals. And they all have silver pellets or pellets embedded in their body that with a magic word, you pop it, silver powder comes out into the bloodstream and they die. I mean, they don't treat them very well at all. They treat them like crap. They're disposable. And they believe he's going to lead them to freedom and they don't want to lose their slaves. And so they've got magical gangs after him. They've got assassins after him. And the first four books, five books, it's him constantly being on the run, going from place to place to place as he starts to slowly learn things. Uh, he finds out he's under a geas. They get the geas removed. That's in book one. Um, he starts learning about his beast, his lion, because as a lycanthrope, originally you can either turn and be human or you can be the animal. Um, you're stronger as the animal and you're stronger as the human now uh, because these things tie into each other. But... You, until you reintegrate that new part of you into one, you can't get your morphic form, you know, your hybrid form, like the big werewolves you see in all the movies and stuff. Right. It takes time to develop that. It takes uh, some training and skill and maybe in some cases desperation. And also, because his father was a magic user, once he gets the geese removed, he can practice magic. But he's got to train himself because who's going to teach him? And while he's a comp sci major he's studying computer science because he figures that's where he's going to get the best jobs is computer science and as he's going through his father left him some books for training in it through a magical device which he gets after the geas is gone he starts studying magic and he realizes magic is an object-oriented computer programming language so suddenly he takes all of the stuff he knows as computer programming and applies that to magic. So suddenly in the course of a very short period of time, he becomes a very powerful magic user because he knows computer programming really well. He's been studying it for years. And I even take out a lot of Unix stuff and things because I know a lot about computer programming. I've been doing it since I was like 12. <laughs> and uh, so he, he rapes the rules effectively. He, he rapes the magic rules. And 
each time he gets set back, he comes back a little more powerful and he gets a little more things and he starts getting allies. Turns out that not all the magic users, councils feel the same way. Uh, one council had freed their, their lichen slaves decades ago. They don't believe in it. Um, another council is on the fence and they're thinking about it. And then you've got the diehard councils who, no, they're never going to do it unless absolutely forced to. Um, and his first goal is to free Reno. Now, while all this is going on, there's another thing that happens. His beast starts talking to him like a different person. Your beast is really just another part of your psyche. And eventually, as you integrate, you can turn things over to your beast, or your beast can turn things over to you if you're in beast form. But it's really just different instincts taking control, and you sit back and kind of advise. Like It's a little more involved than that. But his beast starts talking to him. And starts knowing things and telling him to do things and giving advice. And eventually he figures out that he has another entity living in his head. And that's and he's called the first. And he is the first being. He's the head of all the lions. Because the lions, it turns out, have mystical powers over all the other lycanthropes because they created them. And the first is the very first of all the lycanthropes, of all the lions. He's the one who attained awareness before anyone else. And as you go on, you start to realize he was the first being on this planet to achieve awareness. He is incredibly old. And that leads to how did that happen? Um, and all these things are eventually explained over the course of 18 books. But so he's got a local war. First, he's got to make Reno safe. Then he's got to make he goes to Las Vegas and Las Vegas is a whole different scene because the mob ran Las Vegas for a long time and they wouldn't let the magical councils establish there because they didn't want anyone interfering with their business. Now that the mob's gone, the lycanthropes who they put in power down there and some of the magic users and some of the dwarves and elves and other stuff have managed to keep the councils out by making everyone think the mob's just running it underground. Um, then there's free the you know the rest of the country. He needs to expand this, and the whole time he's being told, "Don't kill the magic users. We don't want a war. We don't want to alienate the magic users." Um, and, and at one point, the U.S. government gets involved. It turns out the U.S. government or aspects thereof know about the magic users. But back when the United States was founded, they signed a treaty with the magic users called the Treaty of York in York, Pennsylvania. And under that treaty, magic users are not considered citizens. So anything they do does not fall under the law as long as they don't mess with the citizens. So all their little wars and chicanery, blind eyes turn to it. But the magic users also practice a thing called the silence where they make sure the mundanes don't know about it, that it's kept secret. Because there's, you know, yeah, there may be 20, 30,000 magic users in the United States, but there's, what, 200 million people? You know, do the math. They're going to lose. And they understand this. Um, so the government starts getting involved and there's all sorts of politics going on because it turns out the secret service are the people who handle all that stuff because they're part of treasury and treasury was the one who originally was assigned to deal with the magic users because they were worried about counterfeiting. And then when the secret service was developed, it got split off onto them because they're a department of the treasury. Um, so it gets involved, and then you start finding out that there are other forces in this game as well. I'm not going to go into that far, spoilers. And that everything that's been going on has actually been this long-involved plan 
that's been leading up to other things. Um, it helps if when you plot a book out, when you plot a whole series out from the beginning, you can really drop little hints like in books two or three. And sometimes they don't really gel until like book 10 or 12 and people start going, wait a second. And they go back and look. And I have a terrible bad habit of dropping modern and postmodern cultural references, you know, cultural references from now, cultural references from like 10, 20 years ago from anime or movies or books or stories. Um, there's a couple in there, quotes that I really love from Wizards, uh, the old Ralph Bashki uh, flick that some people got. Uh, I put in some really strange jokes from different things that came out of places and I wait to see who gets them and wait for the emails to arrive. Because when I was putting these out every month, man, people would just like, I'm getting responses out of the blue because people are trying to find these culture references and these jokes and figure out where they came from. Um, just about every single title is a song. Black Friday is the Steely Dan song. Uh, Perfect Strangers is the Deep Purple song. Uh, over my over our heads and the other one, those are zero seven songs. Um, I listen to a lot of music when I write, and sometimes when I'm stuck for a chapter, I'll look at what's playing and I'll use that. So even a fair number of the chapters are named after songs. But usually it, it tends to have something to do with what's going on in the story. Okay. I've uh, never thought to use music that way, but I'll take it. So you said he used he honed his magic with his understanding of computer code. So is there a magical equivalent then of turning it on and turning it back off again or turning it off and back on again? No, but he does figure out how to make emulators okay. and how to do fireballs and all that stuff for spells and magic. And he starts, he had, you know, he makes a, he has a metaphysical space. You could say like a non-reality. It's mostly something, a programming space from a, a thing his dad did. And, but it's like his, his father uses lost keys because his father was, you know, heavily into, got heavily into science and his research because he started researching atomic and nuclear physics. So he could do these things that he does. And he also studied science. So his father put a lot of actual science into magic because you begin to realize that magic follows the laws of physics. But he does, you know, he starts looking at it and go, wait, these are, this is like serial programming, some of the stuff. He's like, hold it. These are objects. I'm manipulating objects. And I've got the same basic logic structures. Because when you get down into programming, I don't know if you've done any or not, it's logic and logic not. theory. And it's very basic logic. And that logic holds true in everything because it's like, you know, fundamental laws of the universe are based on logic. So magic follows those same rules and the magic language of magic that these people have developed follows those rules. And so he uses that. And he also is, you know, he's taught by his second wife, who's a tantric witch, that the, one of the big secrets of magic is to cheat outrageously, which she has a different take on magic because she's actually a magical genius. Uh, she was expected to be one of the one of this big famous magic user. The seers had all said she would one day be this, you know, huge powerful magic user in this huge powerful family and everything else. And then she turned out to be when she got to the age supposed to get her magic, which it happens around 16, 17, sometimes 18, you get magic. She got almost none. So she was ruled a null effectively. And when you're a null in the magic user families, you're pretty much cast out and they expect you to just go off and kill yourself. 
But here she is. She's a genius. She understands magical theory incredibly well. So she travels to India and becomes a tantric witch. Tantric witches get their magic from sex, and they tend to get it by leeching off of magic users or lycanthropes or whoever, magical beings. So a lot of magic users don't like them because, oh, they're taking our magic away, even though it regenerates, you know, quickly. Um, and also the whole thing of, hey, he's, you know, she's sleeping with my husband kind of a deal. Um, so, but, so he gets a lot of stuff from her. Um, after that, he ends up getting involved with the dwarves. And that's when you start to see things aren't quite what you thought they were because the dwarfs like, oh, you're a lion. Yeah, we're fine with this. You're a lion. You start realizing that why do lions have this special relationship with dwarfs? Because our hero, Sean, is in the dark because he never knew about any of this stuff because of the Gias. And so he's learning as he goes. And a lot of stuff, there's a lot of stuff out there nobody knows. Like nobody knows anything about the lions because there's very few of them. They're rare. Um, they're thought to be gods by the other lycanthropes. And all of the magic users who have all these voluminous studies and notes, they don't have anything on them. And they're like, what's going on with the lions? You know, we've never seen them before. And what is this? So it gets crazy in some ways, but it's a lot of fun. I had a tremendous amount of fun writing the story. So when you write the, obviously this character is different because his is a special relationship with his rare creature, but do they have separate personalities and such that they would have conversations or is it more like inner monologue where you're talking to yourself? It's, they have you to a certain extent, they have conversations now. All the, cause he, he has his lion beast just like all the rest, but he finds out eventually he's got this other thing in there too. Um, your lion, well, your beast half, your animal side, they realize things and see things that you don't necessarily ping to because they're always in the sensory space. You know, like animals have better hearing, better sight. They pay more attention to those things because that's where their focus is, is on their senses. Where a human being is more about, look at how the world reacts around us. How do people interact? So we focus more on that. So there are times when you'll be like, you'll let your, you know, your animal kind of drive your stuff. They'll, they'll give you help with what to do because they'll clue you in on the things that you're not seeing, you're missing because that part of your psyche is focused on different stuff than you are. Uh, like the first time he gets in a fight, basically his lion helps him punch the other guy out because he's knows how to fight, but he's not terribly good at it. But now he's got the reactions and everything of being a lycanthrope, the speed but and the strength, but he doesn't understand how to use it yet. So his beast side helps him. Then there's times when he's running around in lion form and he's just cluing in his lion on certain things as they're going by as far as like cars or mechanical things or stuff like that. So it's kind of a, a, a um, symbiotic thing, even though it's still your mind, it's different aspects of your psyche. And as um, Roxy, the track star says, sometimes if there's something really bad to, she has to do, like kill somebody, she lets her beast do it. She lets her animal do it because they don't have problems with killing things because it's instinctual, you know, survival, kill something. So there is a certain amount of that. Um, when you start out, it's very well, it's a lot more separate, but as you get to the point where you integrate your personality and your psyche, 
it's becomes very quiet. It's very seamless. You really don't talk to each other too much, except for maybe if something you don't feel is right and you want to bounce it off your other half, you may say something. Or if there's something you're missing and your other half is going to poke you and say, hey, you know, they'll make a comment. And that's just, you know, like a, a stray thought almost occurring to you. Only now it's got a voice to it. It's coming from that part of your mind. But you're not really um, two personalities. You're really just different sides of kind of the same coin. It's just you're focused on different things. And so that's why you get that. Okay. So uh, we're going to go okay, a little bit out of order because we got distracted because this was fascinating. But I'm going to share the cover. And while I do that, uh, so how did you come up with the art that you used for this? Because the uh, the art was what caught my attention, and, and they get better as the story gets going. Like your covers keep getting better and better. Yeah. Now I have a I have a ebook launch does my covers, and I've been working with them for a long time. So Dane, my artist, yeah, I, we kind of know each other. He came up with that font for the title, uh, and it's the same font for the title throughout the entire series. Now, this is the first time, you know, Sean, he's like, he's still a bit of a gamer nerd. This is the very first time he gets in a confrontation. At this point, he was bit like 24 hours, not even 24 hours ago. So he's unsure of himself. Now, this is, the, the scene isn't exactly like this. It's a little bit different. But Roxy's been fighting a long time. She was born a wear cheetah. She's done martial arts forever. Actually, the when I first gave it to him, the first sketch I got back before the, he colored it, because... Those are magical gang users who they're about to get in a fight with who are trying to capture Sean. Um, I didn't like the pose, so I sent him a picture of Bruce Lee, and I said, no, I want her to look like this. She is a martial arts expert, and plus she's a cat, so she's fast. You know, and so she is actually in one of the more famous Bruce Lee poses that you see from, I think it's Enter the Dragon. Um, I thought I that looked familiar. That. <laughs> great. Okay. Um, the next cover, do you have the other covers or? No, I just, I have the one. So I wanted to show, because we talked about it on the last interview, um, whereas the one that caught my attention that made me want to uh, to do oh, the yeah. interview is this one. When it and falls. It's just, yeah, that, I mean, the cover, the art keeps getting better and better. Some of it's action scenes, some of it's, you know, the romance and, and the men's <clears> adventure <throat> part. But uh, the covers just keep getting better. So I just thought, you know. I was curious the story behind it. So you you direct the scenes? Um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. It's a mix. Like this one, when it falls, okay, they 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 were at the point where they have a building downtown Reno, and they figure in Sparks, they have a brownstone. It's fairly big, <clears throat> and they figure, okay, we're safe. No one's going to attack this building. Well, it gets attacked, and it gets destroyed. So they have to go through all this stuff. They get heloed out because one of the other packs in the area, which is now an ally, has helicopters. And, you know, some get out before the place is totally engulfed and they get heloed out. So here they are. Everything's been burned down. They've been up all night and they're just sacking out. And he's got to start making phone calls. And at this point, he's got four wives. And that's his four wives. And so he's sitting there on the phone having to call people and deal with people. And they're all just, cause they've been going, they had a big firefight when the place was set on fire, you know, all this stuff happened. They had all these people they had to watch out for and deal with and save. And when I thought of it, I, this is very much based on the who uh, picture from the kids are all right. It's almost the exact same kind of, it's almost the same thing. And I told them, this is what I want the cover to be. 
you know, because the artist knows all the girls on each cover. They there is especially as they grow. He's got descriptions on everybody what they look like, he, and he knows the covers, so he keeps everything going from book to book to book. Um, and in some, you know, sometimes I didn't know. I said, you know, I want here's a couple of scenes, pick one, or here's what I want, do this. But I try not to give too much direction. A lot of times I try to give as little direction as possible because I want the artist to be able to do what he can do because he's given me some great covers that way. Uh, a few times I've given him like three choices. I said, I don't know which one of these you want to do. And and he he picked the one that I really liked the most, but I didn't want to like point him at that. I wanted you know him to have his own thing. I give him a synopsis of what the story is, though, and I, I let him know what's going on and where things are going. But yeah, that's where that one came from. And I, I do kind of like that cover. It's got a real nice blend to it. It's got nice artwork to it. It's It stands out very well. Amazon and, won't allow that cover in ads because it's, they consider it to be pornographic. It, that's the one that is the uh, the banner on his Facebook fan club, which we'll link to in the description. And when we were prepping for the, the fireside chat, which you know you would have a couple episodes ago heard him, him on, uh, that one was the one that got my attention because just the the it's clearly it was men's adventures because you know it's, it's listed as such the, the font sort of makes you think you know it's an indiana jones kind of vibe to it for me at least and then you saw the women in the cheetah and it was just like okay i gotta know more yeah there, so. well, well it's men's adventure or men, action and adventure for men it's not porn that's one thing i want to point out yes there are spicy scenes one or two a book typically two one sometimes only one i think once or twice i went a little more but I, I put them in there because that's what the market demands. But I don't write porn. I write adventure, you know, and these are about a young man and his his journey to adulthood and all the things that get piled on him that he has to deal with. And he becomes the victim of his own success. He's very successful at so many things. And just, you know, in the beginning, it's do or die. And there's a few times later on in the series where it's, you know, do or die. He has to do these things. And he starts getting involved in more and more of the world. And he is eventually, you know, though he doesn't act that way too much, he eventually becomes probably one of the most powerful people in the world because he can do certain things. He has certain abilities. And um, he pretty much progresses as a character. He is a very well-defined character arc. So he starts from there and, you know, there he's a bit of a, what am I doing here? I don't know. And, you know, he's, he's just been dropped in the middle of it. And he hasn't even, at this point, he hasn't even really come to terms with who and what he is because he's, Roxy only just told him like four hours ago about who and what he is. And, and that, uh, that's a cool way to do it because you don't want the Rosencrantz and whatever, you know, so there we were, Bob, kind of thing. But if you have the reader finding out as the character does, it sort of works as a way to sort of tell the the universe, as it were. I, I like the way you, you structured that. Was that intentional or just sort of happenstance? No, that was very intentional. Um, you have to understand, I started out writing first person singular. And first person singular, you never know anything unless the character knows it. So when I start going out with this whole journey and everything, while this series is written third person plural, you know, it head jumps a, a fair bit, but not too much in any one time. But you usually with one person for a while and mostly you're with Sean. Occasionally you go at Roxy or Dylene, 
or Jolene or the others. But once you're in one person's head, you tend to be there, though. Sometimes there's big conversations. You may get some hints about what other people are thinking. But usually the reader doesn't know anything he doesn't know. But as it starts to expand and you have him and his wives, it's you know the things he knows or his wives know. Um, sometimes they, they, you learn it by them explaining to him, you know, telling him about certain things. That's how he learns about the magical councils and stuff. Um, and other times you learn it from, you know, one of the wives or somebody doing stuff. And also as this goes on, his friends come into the story because he's got his gamer friends. Um, one of whom uh, is actually based on a very good friend of mine. Um is a military genius, okay? This guy wanted to go into the military to prove to everybody he's a military genius because he can win at any single game there is. He knows everything about strategy, tactics, knows so many games because he's played them all, and he always wins at anything he does. But when he was about 16 years old, he got kneecapped in a drive-by because a couple of crips mistaked him for blood, and so he destroyed his knee. So now he, he's 4F permanently. Um, well, eventually he gets enlisted to help with the things that are going on and becomes, you know, Sean's general. Um, then you have Sean's absolute best friend since they were like 12, because here he is a very poor kid. And this kid's dad owns a car garage and everybody thinks that, oh, this kid's poor too, because his dad's just a mechanic in a garage. And so they become thick as thieves and get into all sorts of different things over time. And Steve, that character, he is a born salesman, you know, or some people, or as he likes to say, conman. That's more respectable. But he knows people. He knows how to understand people. He knows how to read people. He understands business. He knows how to make people happy, give them what they want, and make a profit in the whole process. And he ends up bringing Steve in to help him because Steve understands the whole PR aspect. He actually tells Steve first because he's his best friend in the world. And Steve starts helping him bring some of his other friends in. So you, you get that expansion of stuff and also the families. Like Roxy's father is the sheriff of Las Vegas or the county that Las Vegas is. I forget what county it is at the moment. That's like the most prestigious law enforcement position in all of Nevada. And so that starts having pluses and minuses at first and eventually it becomes all pluses. Um other people and stuff, because one of his wives is a dwarf. He ends up getting all these connections into the dwarven community. It's He grows his team as time goes on, as he gains his experience and he gains in power, and he starts figuring out the things he's got to do. Because he's not stupid. He's just always been you know, told by his mother, stay out of trouble, keep your head down, because they've got nothing. And... Um, and when he's not at school, he's working. He's bus. He's been a busboy in probably every casino in Reno because he needs to constantly work to bring in money so they can make ends meet while his mom has to constantly work to bring in money to make ends meet. So he's been kind of held down, pushed down the whole time. And now suddenly he's like being able to be coming to his own self and come into his own thing. And some of his friends even comment on the fact. One of his friends is a Paiute Indian. And there's some really funny jokes there. He goes, yeah, I, I never realized you had this whole spiritual thing going on. It makes me feel kind of guilty, you know, that I never realized this because 
obviously there was all this stuff going on, which is why he became a lion. Cause you know, the, the Indians are all in on it. They all know about it cause they still have their shaman and all the other stuff. And, and then there's, um, there's Sawyer who is a goblin fence who I modeled very heavily on Danny DeVito. It's still the voice in my head. <laughs> read him or write him. And uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I just had so much fun with the thing, to be honest with you. It was a blast riding it. So what would your, you know, if, if people were still not convinced this late into the interview, what would your 30-second elevator pitch for the series be? Um, if you want to read a coming-of-age story with magic and somebody who isn't an asshole or an idiot and learns from his mistakes, and, you know, with a strong male lead, this is the book you want. Okay. So do you feel like there are um, certain tropes that Black Friday and the, you know, the series generally hits really well? Um, I spawned the trope. This entire book is now a trope. I have oh. been, I have been copied on the basic formula for this story at least a dozen times that I know of, uh, because um, at one of the 20 books, the uh, 50K, the first convention, Oh, this got talked about a lot because I got a couple of emails from people who were there because everyone's like, how are we going to rip this guy off? Because, um, you know, there are tropes in it. The whole thing, you know, uh, young man comes into come into his power. Young man has a hidden heritage. You know, uh, father was assassinated because he knew too much. Young man inherits, gathers the legacy. Um, the hot track school, you know, the hot track star at school becomes his girlfriend. Uh, yeah, I, I mind the tropes a lot on that, you could say. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking for fun things that people relate to, the kind of wish fulfillment that we all have at different times in our lives. Um, the whole thing about the guy who has been kept down now suddenly gets to stand up. Um, the, the guy who never had to do certain things gets to learn these things, finds out he's got this hidden inheritance and all this these hidden powers. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot in there. But the whole thing... It, of itself i've seen people formulate I, I even had to take a few people to court over some of the stuff they were doing because they were being, just being too blatant um but you know coming of age i do coming of age i've been told that one of the things i do well is coming of age because dan's inferno is also about a young man coming of age and learning of stuff because you know i have fun with it the other thing i do really well is creating alternate realities I can create a new world very easily, it seems, compared to most people. Because Portals of Infinity has got like 20 alternate realities, 30, and there's a new couple every book. Um, I think some of that's because my understanding of science and physics and everything, it makes it easy for me to just change a few things, come out with a new world or reality, and just figure out how everything reacts to that and then make it work. And because I know what the changes are I made, I can make everything play together really nice. So it it passes the smell test. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much, you know, I figured out how would we put these things together and make it work. I also, like I said, I, I know a lot about the area. I know a fair bit of um, engineering, programming, all that stuff, physics. So I just put it all together and kind of make it fly. Okay, so is, what do you think makes the series special? What makes it, you know, in the crowded field that that is this this genre? What do you think makes your books special? Well, the 
field wasn't so crowded when I wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's actually kind of the first of its kind. Uh, this was book was unique when it came out, and I only I put this out in 2017. So a lot of people have come along and, and filled that field. Um, I did take a lot of things and put them together. You know, I took lycanthropes, I took magic user, I took physics, I, I took um, the whole heritage thing or the legacy, you know, the, the, the bad guys out to get the good guys, uh, you know, the running for your life constantly, being on the run. I took a lot of those tropes and put it together, and then I, I built them as the series goes on and added more and more because eventually politics comes into play, not just the magic user politics and all the backstabbing goes on there, but U.S. politics and then international politics to even a certain extent. All that stuff gets involved because this thing just keeps growing on different levels as more things come into the story because it, it's got a, a big arc to it. And this is just the beginning. The whole reason for him freeing the Lycans becomes clear. There's more reasons to it than you're originally told as more gets revealed to him. Um. But what I guess makes it stand out is the science is all 100%. The places are all 100%. The way people react to each other is all 100%. And there are no kind of gotcha moments where you look at something and go, no, that that knocked me out. There's none of these suspension of disbeliefs that will just kick you out of the story. So I was very careful on all of that. Uh, there's a fair bit of research that went into certain aspects of this story. Of the whole thing, because like I said, this was a massive undertaking. Um, actually, there is there is one mistake I made, and that is the um, the Barrett 50 caliber sniper rifle is semi-auto and it's not bolt action. I forgot on that. I also made a mistake that got called out really quick, and I fixed that one. I accidentally put skids on Blackhawks, and that killed me because I've flown in Blackhawks. I know they have wheels on them, but for some reason I was thinking Hueys because prop to then I'd been dealing with Hueys, and I've flown in Hueys too, and Hueys have skids. <laughs> uh, I, I, I felt so embarrassed. I went and changed the book immediately. I told everybody, my bad. Uh, but it's, I don't know. I've been told by a lot of people it's a very engaging story. And like I said, it has sold Black Friday, I think at this point, it sold 80,000 copies. Nice. So don't feel bad. I got the uh, helicopter thing wrong, too. I was preparing a uh, draft to go to the editor and I got it back and they're like, yeah, no. <laughs> so I had to go back and find every reference to the uh, to the Blackhawk because I put kids too. So. Yeah, and, and it just killed me because it's like, I've, I've actually been around Blackhawks quite a bit and I just could, I, I, was, I was so embarrassed. It was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Um, but, you know, you make, sometimes you make stupid mistakes. Uh, one of the things... Mark II. When you talk about Mark II and you talk about Mark II machine guns, everybody thinks the old Ma Deuce. Well, the problem is, is the Army loves to call things M2, you know, the second generation. And there was a machine gun system used on Hueys in Vietnam called the, the M2, the Mark II. And it was the predecessor of the current machine gun systems, and it used armor-piercing ammunition. But back then, armor-piercing ammunition used iron at first, then they went to steel as penetrators until they realized those don't work well. And they switched, they started switching to the penetrators they use today. And so I've got those guns because Sawyer has a bunch of them sitting in storage that he's been trying to unload forever. And they get a bunch of those guns and they use them for some things. And that has some consequences. And I don't know how many people wrote me about it. I said, no, it's the Mark II machine gun system 
from Vietnam that was used on the Hueys. And I think I even put a note in the book about it. Yeah, I put it in the afternoon. <laughs> Stop writing me. I know what a Madus is. I've shot a Madus. I know what that is. You know, I almost bought one once. Um, and these things happen because sometimes because people don't know as much as they think they do. And so you try to explain things to them to understand it. And sometimes people run into stuff and they just, it's things outside of their, you know, comprehension, things they've never dealt with. Um, and I can understand that, you know, because I've, I've been through so many crazy things over my life, especially when working in flight tests and, and defense and all that stuff. Because I was a flight test engineer for like 10 years. You run into a lot of crazy things, a lot of strange stuff. And you get to talk to a lot of interesting people about a lot of weird things. Um, so, you know, you, you try to spice the story up. Like there's a secret room in the post office in Reno, in the Reno post office. Not a lot of people know where it is. I know about it because a friend of mine worked in there. He had to go in there to run cables and stuff when they refitted the building. So he was in there constantly. And it's there's only one way in and one way out. And it's been there forever. And most people don't even know it exists because of the way the building was built. Um, little crazy things like that. There's a uh, an old, um, I'm not forget what, what tribe it was, but there's an old like tribal ghost town north of Monument Rock in a particular area. But it's not on the maps because they don't want people going there and trashing the place. So if you don't know where it is, you don't know about it. And there's little things like that I throw into the stories, things local knowledge that I know. And I got a lot of response out of people who live in Reno who read the books. They'd be like, hey, I didn't know you knew about that. Or, wow, you really know about Reno. Um, you know, it's the, it's the fine details, the little touches that bring life to a story. And I try to make sure I do those, um, you know, and, and I try to make people talk usually like the way people really talk, though it can be hard at times, especially if they're accents. The usual trick is you start to take the accent away and people don't know because it's already in their head once the character's established. Yeah. So I, we've talked about this. So now I'm curious about the room in Reno. I'm going to be doing some research when we when we get off this interview. Uh, were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable? It sounds like his wives would be secondary characters, but do you have a favorite secondary character since it sounds like there's enough to choose there's from? A, there's a lot of secondary characters in this story. The wives all got their own short stories because there's this, there's, this, um, there's uh, four books, Wives' Tales. One, two, three, and four. Oh. And the first three each are two short stories about the wives telling about um, fundamental things that happened in their past that changed them, things that are alluded to in the main series. And so I wrote each of those out as a short story. There's also a couple of other short stories in there about things that happened to some of the characters. Um, not too many. I need to write a bunch more. But the wives... Yes, they all have stuff. They all have, and there's actually you. He eventually ends up with a seventh wife, which that goes into what's going on in the third arc, which I don't want to give spoilers on. Um, there's Sawyer, who I just love to death because he's just such a fun character because he's a goblin, and he's a fence, and he's a crook to a certain extent, and he's got very questionable morals. But as you get to know him you get to realize that he is a paragon of goblin society and that you start to understand goblin society. You start to understand that there are rules in goblin society that they will never break. And once you understand those rules and understand how it works, 
And in some ways, it's almost like the Ferengi. There's a certain amount of Ferenginess in there, you could say, because the, the, the Ferengi rules of acquisition are, are truly a gem. Whoever thought those up was very, very smart. Um, <clears throat> there's a, another lion who you meet about halfway through the series called Adam. You know, Adam is, he's like the youngest, up until this whole thing happens with Sean and everything, he is the youngest lion ever born. He's still a couple thousand years old, but he's the youngest lion out there. And he's a playboy, and he's disreputable. And he, you know, you look up the word playa in the dictionary, and there's his picture. Uh, irresponsible, blah, 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 so on and so forth. He's, he's really, he's like, oh, in some ways, face from the A-team. And we're uh, used car salesman. And he's just totally disreputable. And as time goes on, you start learning little things about him. Like he's got like an incredible temper. Hard to piss off, but once you piss him off, he just goes insane. And he starts to become reputable because he's being told all these stories about stuff that Sean's does. Because Sean, as he goes on, he does some very nasty things in the in the fight that comes on to, to people who just they they went beyond what he considered to be acceptable behavior. The things they did, the, you know, the people they killed and stuff, and he just lose it and do incredibly nasty shit to people. And he starts hearing about this, and he's like, "Damn, <laughs> somebody worse than me." But he's a fun character. Um, some of the other characters, oh, Stuart. Stuart is an interesting character. Stuart started out, and there's a whole little sub-story about Stuart that goes on in the books. And it starts off with Stuart's bad day, Stuart's, you know, terrible afternoon. Stuart's, you know, they're all like little chapters like that. Stuart is, he's a magic user kid. He's about to turn 21. Yeah, I think he's 21. I forget at the moment. But he's spoiled, Brad. His dad is a very powerful and psychopathic man in the magic user council of this one particular council treats lichens like crap wants his son who wants to be an enchanter to be a like on run the lichen hit squads you know where you take the lichens out and you kill people and you know the enemy anyone who's a problem you take the you take your lichen hit team out and yeah maybe some of them die maybe all of them die who cares they're disposable but you take them out and use them to take care of problems and his first time out running the teams, everything goes wrong. The guy he's with, because he's just there to observe mostly and, and learn the job, the guy he's with gets killed. The Lycans end up, like, taking him hostage, and they're going to, like, try to – they're thinking of killing him, but they're going to try to trade him to Sean so they can get the stuff to get the silver out of them. And that all goes sideways. So he gets sent home eventually. And he ends up home and he's thinking about the things that these lichens, who he's known, you know, most of these guys, even though he believes they're all dead now because they're not as good as he is. And he starts thinking about the stuff that's going on. And all their lichens get stolen by Sean. So now they don't have all their servants and slaves. So he goes out and buys one on the black market. And he gets this, he wanted a young toy. He gets this old, older, she's like five, six years older than him. Takes her anyway because he suddenly knows if he doesn't, worse things will happen to her. And he feels sorry for her. And he starts treating her like a human being. So she just goes, like, latches onto him and starts showing him, like, sexual world, everything, and making his life, like, wonderful. Because she's like, hey, 
this guy's treating me okay. She killed her last owner. We don't, we don't, he doesn't know that, you know, that she poisoned them because he was treating her really bad. So she's like, I'm going to build this kid up. And then by the time he gets tired of me, I'll be sitting in his household for the rest of my life. Well, more things happen. And he ends up sending her up to where Sean is so she can be safe. Meanwhile, his father buys him this really, you know, 18-year-old built to be a sex toy liking. Because remember, they're slaves. And he's like, I can't treat her like this. I got to be nicer to her. And eventually he sees these bad things that are going to be happening. He says, screw it. He grabs her. He goes up to Reno, turns her over, and tells Sean everything that's going on, about this whole bad thing that's about to happen so they can be prepared for it. And at this point, he also finds out that the guy he always thought it was his father, the psycho, who was just always going off the deep end and the world's worst father times a thousand – really isn't his father. His mom's been stepping out with one of the werewolves. <laughs> and his brother and sister, that's how long she's been stepping out with the werewolves, his older brother and sister. And so he decides to stay. His his stepfather, who is, you know, rather his real father, who is a werewolf, is like this real kick-ass guy. And so suddenly he's like really happy that he doesn't have this complete psychotic asshole as a father. He's got this down-to-earth werewolf as his father. And so he starts doing things. And the two girls now at this point, because he's treated them so well, they latch right back onto him. And then a bad accident happens and he ends up as a, as a lycanthrope. And to save his life. And now suddenly Sean's willing to teach him all of his tricks, which he wouldn't teach him before because he wasn't going to teach somebody he didn't have any control over. And he starts building all this stature inside of the story. And at one point, he's, you know, there's a, this thing that has that happens, and they have to send a team of lycanthropes out to contain it, this really nasty thing that where these demons are killing people. And they send the team that had kidnapped him and was going to kill him. They send them off to do this. And he's like, hey, they need a magic user. Guys, you want me to come along? And so suddenly he's all geared up. In, you know, and fatigues and everything. And he's out saving people's lives with this very team of people who were going to kill him because they hated the person they thought was his dad so much. And he bonds with them because, you know, they go through, they go through a firefight and combat together. And it, it's just, it's this whole character arc that's sub to the story that just goes on. And so by the time you get to book 18, you know, Stuart's a badass and everybody knows it. You know, it's like, no, you don't mess with Stuart. Because at one point, some Marines are going, why are we talking to this kid? Because that kid will kick your ass. <laughs> and so, it's just fun story. So you've we've talked about some of the horrible things you put your characters through. So if they met you in a back alley and they knew who you were and, and the things you had done to them, how do you see that interaction playing out? Um, you know, I don't know. Some of them, if I if I, I met them after it was all over, I'd be like, hey, look at where you are now. You know, you couldn't get there if you didn't take the trip. So, you know, you may you may be mad at me, but I'm sorry, dude. I, I, I look at where you are now and I can't say anything about that. Now, some of the people who got what they deserved. Yeah, that probably wouldn't go very well. <laughs> So, so we've talked about the characters, but let's talk a little bit about the universe. How? So obviously, there's the 
lycanthropes, there's the dwarves, there's the all these, you know, fantasy type creatures. Are they out in the open or is most of this hidden? This is all hidden. The story actually takes place, it starts uh, uh, 2018, March 15th or 13th, I forget the exact date, starts in Reno, our world. Any real world events that are going on are in the story. Um, Burning Man takes place outside of Reno. That's in the story. And it's that year's Burning Man. Um, everything that's going on in the news at that time, because I started writing this story in 2017. So I made sure that a certain amount of the real world intrudes. There's only um, two things from the real world that aren't in there. The president in the story of the United States is not Trump or Obama. It's neither one of those. It's a combination of actually probably about the last six or seven presidents because I didn't want to get political. And when I bring up and when certain senators or congressmen or mayors, that's not they're not real people. They're um, conglomerations or agglomerates. What do you want to say of other people? Because I didn't want to inject politics into the story. Other than that, it's very real world. Um, these, you know, lycanthropes look human when they're human. And so you can't tell they're not. They blend into society. Magic users, same thing. They, they don't want to stand out. Um, you know, the dwarves, for the most part, yes, dwarves are short. Um, but you see a lot of short people in life. And it, I don't know if you've ever dealt with construction, but there's a particular trade called tin knockers. And tin knockers are all these very short and very strong guys. They're the guys who do all the duct work in the skyscrapers. And you can't do that job if you're a big guy because you got to fit into tight spaces. So they tend to be, you know, like under 5'10". But because they're bending metal and they're doing all this heavy physical labor, they all tend to be really strong. And so, yeah, the tin knockers, it turns out, are all dwarves. You know, stuff like that. The dwarves, dwarven women don't have beards. Yeah, I, I veered a little bit on that one. Uh, they tend to be very attractive. Uh, dwarven men may or may not shave because of whether or not they got to fit in society because they tend to hide themselves. But they run a lot of manufacturing plants and they do a lot of manufacturing. And a certain amount of it is hidden because, uh, yeah, there's a dwarven hall just south of Reno, uh, just north of Carson. Well, it's around Carson City. Um, you know, body and fender men, things like that. Um, there are no elves really in North America. There's some up in Canada. Most of the elves are down in South America because they like the heavy forests. Um, the Fae, I have fairies, or you know, the Fae and the city, or Sid, however you say it, Sid, I can't, I can't remember. I have, they're in Ireland and in parts of Europe. They're really not here in the United States. I mean, at one point I even have a puka in the story because I had to put a puka in the story. Um, so you don't have a lot of them in the United States. Then you have uh, the Indians. The Indians are all very spiritual and they understand all this stuff because they've been living here for a long time in the United States, but they don't have issues with it. Um, but they're very much attached to the spiritual world. And most of this stuff, People just don't notice there is because, you know, you see something you don't understand. Most times you're going to just explain it away as something you do understand. And there are enough mages who have mind magic that they can just tell you, oh, you didn't see that. You forgot. And they'll cast a spell, you know, like the blue light and men in black. And you didn't see it or you think it was something else. But 
magic users are such a small minority that of the population for all that they're very powerful you, they don't stand out you know they they really don't dress fancy or anything like that they dress just like everybody else for the most part so that's there now as things continue i start to veer away from that most places when they have this kind or most stories rather when they have this kind of thing it's never shed into the daylight matter of fact the only one is the kitty norville series um where she outs the lycanthropes halfway through the series and i kind of do the same thing at one point for specific reasons but i don't out the magic users of the dwarves or the rest of that just the lycanthropes and they out themselves um so and then of course there's all the politics that plays with that because anything that happens you always have a group opposed to it um so yeah but it starts out it's it starts out regular regular world and just something's changed as time goes on for story reasons at least don't shake the table okay that sounds definitely interesting, and it's definitely a long, long arc to uh, to follow. So we know that Black Friday is part of a series because we've talked about there are currently eighteen books out in the series. But it sounds like there are some spinoff series. At least the um, the Wives' Tales is a spinoff series. Are there any others besides the um, the Valens Legacies that you're writing? Valens Heritage starts after, so it's twenty years after book eighteen. And it's following um, a number of uh, Sean's children. Um, okay. Several different books following several different children. And I've really been thinking about writing um, a couple of anthologies with just a lot of short stories about, because he's got a lot of kids. Um, but some of the other characters, and there are times I think about going back and writing some short stories about some of the other characters, maybe from the first series. It's a very rich world. There is a lot of stuff there to mine. Okay. So it sounds like there's still plenty of room for you to tell more tales and you're not done yet. No, no. I am going to be taking breaks from it on and off, though, because I don't want to get um, just tar you know, tunnel vision and just be locked on one target. Okay. So was there anything about Black Friday and the Valens legacy that we didn't ask that you wanted to tell us before we before we wrap this up? Um. Not really. I, I think we pretty much covered all of it. And I, you know, okay. I don't want to get into too many spoilers. I've probably given away too many as there is. <laughs> <laughs> it's ha it happens when we're passionate. Um, normally, we would ask the age range because we do have families that listen to this. It sounds like if you put um, times where you didn't fade to black, that this is an adult, a mature story, like as far as an audience goes, 18 plus I would, readers. I would, I would say 16 and up. Okay. It, it got drafted into the call into the not um the new adult, not young adult, which is up to like starts at like eleven. It got drafted into the new adult category. Because I would say any kid over 16 and up is not gonna have a problem with it because you know, in our society these days, everyone from 16 and up knows about sex and they, they know all that stuff. Um most of the time, especially in the beginning, the, the sex scenes do drive the story. You know, they're not just gratuitous. Um, once or twice later in the books, I put in some gratuitous ones just for laughs, fan service, you know. But yeah. <laughs> most of it's not gratuitous. And I don't really enjoy writing sex scenes anymore. You know, there was a time I had fun with it. But these days I try to, I don't make, I try not to make them long. I don't do the whole, um, 
Oh man, what was that series? I forget now at the moment, but with the detective Anita Blake, that's it. I, I won't do like, yeah, the first 200 pages of the book is one orgy. No, I don't do that. Um, but to be honest with the themes and everything in it, not necessarily the adult themes, but the themes of, um, you know, things like slavery and human trafficking and um, all the other stuff that people with power will do to other people who can't, re you know, resist them. Those tend to be themes I think that you pick up on more when you start to be like 17 or 18 years old or in some cases even 20s, 30s, 40s. Because, you know, some of these are, are tales that are as old as time as itself. Um, I know history very well. Uh, I know a lot about slave rebellions and stuff like that and how many have succeeded in the world. And it's really only one, two, if you count technicalities. Um, but these are things that are that are brought into along with, like, I even go into the Hoplites at one point and how that all worked and all sorts of just ancient stuff that are these things come around again and especially when you have one character in the story who's been there throughout all time every once in a while you drop out little gems from things that happened you know thousands of years ago or tens of thousands of years ago uh so it's not a shallow story it's got actually a lot going on in the background at times but it builds it starts off simple but as sean's world expands your world expands and you start having all these things brought in and learning about all these other things in the world that are out there. Okay. So before we wrap this up, dear leader, oh, dear leader, dear listener, I'd like to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right book. So do your part people. Uh, as we bring this to a close, John, can you tell listeners how they can find you? And as usual, it'll be in the show notes. Okay. You can either go on to Amazon.com and put in John Van Stry or Jan Strivant as spelt on the screen there. Uh, or you can go to uh, janstrivant.com or johnvanstry.com and you'll get my website, which by the time this comes out, I'll probably have the new website out. Um, or you could even just put Jan Strivant or John Van Stry in Google and you will find me. Um, there are no other Jan Strivants in the world and there are no other John Van Strys in the world, at least currently. Maybe one of my relatives will name another Johnson. Uh, <laughs> but I have a fairly decent web presence. And I'm also on Audible. These stories are also available as audiobook formats on Audible, done by Podium Press or Podium Publishing, sorry. Um, and I think that's about it. All right. And you can find us, dear listener, at Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. You can join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Uh oh, let me put that full screen for you. So we can see that. Um, it's actually so, the cover book too, but it's what's on my on my card, my business card. Oh, that's awesome! I'm digging it. I'm digging it. So um, you can also um, support the show over on our well. We have our website, Anchor.fm backslash Blasters dash and dash Blades. Anchor.fm backslash Blasters tack and tack Blades, where you can also support the show for as little as ninety nine cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. Or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, 
buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section for this, that it's for the podcast, and I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. I really do need to find a new bit because we don't drink that much, I promise you people. But uh, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. <laughs>